Okay. All right. Cool. So we are back with the next guest episode, which I'm genuinely very excited about because I feel like I actually have some energy when there's another person here. Um, whereas last time I think I recorded at like midnight and I had already been frankly pretty stoned. So <laughs> a little low key that time, but it was still fun. Um, I got to talk about thrash music, which I'm not crazy about. So I got to do something, um, putting me outside of my comfort zone, which is kind of the point. Uh, but I don't think the guest today is really going to be outside of his comfort zone because John, you kind of listen to pretty much everything. Is that right? Except new metal. You told me you hate new metal. I, I'm not going to say hate. Hate is a strong word, but like I remember it, when it was around the first time when I was a little kid, and I, that, it was not my vibe at all. And I've not really grown to love it since then. Outside of the bands, that everyone says, "Oh, but System of a Down, Deftones, like that's not new metal." No, that were. absolutely does not count. And I'm not like, and I'm not like rabidly against new metal or anything. Like, there's a lot of it that sucks ass, but some of it's okay. Um, yes, I mean, same as literally any genre on earth. Sure, um, yeah, it, it's just. I'm sure, I'm sure even power metal. I'm sure even power metal has some good albums. Power metal does have some good albums. All right, because like I went through a brief <laughs> phase where that stuff, like, I just needed to feel like a Viking for the day. I don't know, uh, but it just worked for me. Maybe actually that'll probably be a pretty fun episode at some point. Is try to find power metal that doesn't suck. Um, I've tr- I've tried and I would I would love to succeed honestly because like that's a great idea. Like I love what you're trying to do and I'm sure there's people that do manage it. But um, yeah, I, I just need to actually sit down and give it a, a real go. I think and yeah, but other other than that, I think we largely have pretty similar taste in terms of um, yeah, mainly being focused on maybe like death metal, grindcore like some black metal, um, which is a lot of what I want to talk about today. But um, Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and now that in retrospect, I probably should have made you, like when I was planning out these essential albums, I probably should have planned out some stuff that you're probably not a huge fan of or don't listen to much of. Um, because I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I'm 28, so I was born in the mid-90s, and, you know, new metal was already kind of waxing by the time I was old enough to even listen to music and know what I was hearing, so I didn't get into it the first round. Um, but what I was there for was for, like, the emo, screamo, you know, Brie Brie deathcore stuff, too. Um, and I got a real big soft spot for that, so I know that's going to happen someday. I actually have a guest in mind who is going to take me on that journey, so maybe I should have forced you to listen mm-hmm. to that. But... <laughs> What I did get you to listen to is stuff that I'm sure you probably have already heard. And I know for a fact uh, you've listened to Volume 4, Black Sabbath. Um, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this on Twitter before. Um, thoughts? Concerns? Oh. Anything? Um, I mean, if, if, yeah, if, if we go back to like Asian stuff, like I'm 32 going on 33, so I remember the new metal heyday when i was a little kid and all that deathcore stuff was coming up when i was a teenager and pretty much exactly the right age for it but i was kind of honestly kind of snobby about it even then this is going to be a theme i think of me discussing my own influences later on is just kind of being a snotty arsehole as a teenager who needed to sort of calm down and um accept that other genres outside of punk could be good uh basically but um if, yeah if we're going to talk about volume Four by Sabbath. Um, I I think I may have told you this story before that like 
I think maybe my first exposure to anything involving Ozzy Osbourne was when I was, I guess, uh, 12, 13, at the height of uh, his reality TV fame was <laughs> when he released a version of Changes, the, the ballad from Volume 4, with uh, Kelly Osbourne, his daughter, which even at the time I was like, this sucks, um, I hate this. <laughs> and... Um, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm still not that warm on that song. Even in the version of Volume 4 is superior. You've got some nice Mellotron on there that sounds very warm and mellow in a way that um, a lot of Sabbath tracks didn't. And even though that song itself doesn't do much for me, I do love the structure of every one of those first few, like four, five, maybe even six Sabbath albums where heavy metal hadn't congealed into only being hard and fast and loud yet it was like well we want to have some variety as well let's get spacey and weird on planet caravan or solitude or whatever or in this case try and do an actual ballad um which i think i've said before i'm not sure ozzy Osbourne has the voice for that or he didn't have the confidence or chops for it at that time but i mean in the context of the album it still works and surrounding it uh, you, you got you got Supernaut, you got Snowblind. That's some of the the strongest Sabbath riffs ever ever written. Well, I've said so, it before, and I'll keep saying it. That Supernaut, in my opinion, is like probably my favorite riff of all time. You know, I'm I'm just really hard pressed to find one that's like better off the top of my head. Um, and you mentioned it getting weird and spacey, and the, in like the back half of that song is just this weird like breakdown with like an acoustic guitar and it sounds like a tambourine or something that just kicks in for I, yeah. I don't really know why I mean probably the why is just a lot of cocaine but you know it, they definitely <laughs> did something weird at, in every turn and not to make this, this was definitely their cocaine album oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they said I mean, that you, they put you know, it in just... the, like stacks like the album or the um like amplifier stacks they just like stuff them full of cocaine into the studio so yeah yeah and you don't want to attribute everything about an album or a artist's work to just whatever drugs they were taking because of course like it's more than that like you give an uncreative person drugs that's not going to make them any better at writing music but it yeah it does create a different atmosphere from the three albums prior to that which i mean certainly master of reality way more of a weed album um and yeah just a, a very different I guess writing process and everything to do with that and it does like that and I guess Sabbath Bloody Sabbath uh, after the year after feel kind of similar to me kind of uh, joined in like sonic experimentation almost yeah. I don't know if you see a link between them that's probably the weirdest album of theirs in my opinion like I, I'm looking forward to coming back to that at some point because I plan on covering like the first six Sabbath albums and probably Heaven and Hell um, because you gotta do it you gotta you gotta but I, I think the first six albums is just an unbroken string of bangers like I think like they've got that I think Death had that and I think you know to a maybe slightly lesser extent Mastodon has that where like they just put out a string of albums that I don't think there was a single bad one um, I think Death and Sabbath had a string where it was like, oh, classic after classic after classic after classic. And this is the one where a lot of people think they kind of peaked on this album. I'm not entirely sure if I agree with that, but it definitely was... I think Ozzy peaked on this album. I feel like this was probably his best performance, but... 
Um, could be, yeah. Um, I, I think I, yeah, lean more towards um, Master of Reality, Paranoid, Heaven, Heaven and Hell, the, the Dio era is probably what I listen to the most out of Sabbath these days after sort of, you know, you burn yourself out on the classic stuff for a bit and then you think, oh, we got a new singer, we're kind of a new band at this point and you... That makes sense. Yeah, you gravitate towards that, but like... That makes sense. I, if, if someone says they feel this is the pinnacle of Sabbath, I'm like, yeah, like... That's a choice I can respect, certainly. Yeah, and like going back to some of the stuff I've talked about in previous episodes, it's like uh, if you're a fan, but more so if you're like a musician, I think, like looking back on this era before it all congealed, as you put it, into like one real consistent sound defining metal, um, it's really just an issue of picking out what's the most important part for you. Um, and th- And I think the fun thing really about maybe the three essential albums I picked uh, is that, and the ones you picked, honestly, is that they really give you a lot to work with in terms of having uh, just stuff in there that you really got to pick and choose because there's a lot to, there's a lot to choose from. And I think uh, volume four has a ton to choose from. Uh, If you're a fan, you can pick out like, I like what they're doing here on this song, or I like what they're doing here on that song because they're going to give you something really different each time. And it's and it's almost like every metal band in existence, like since then, which is every other metal band, sort of listen to those albums and we're like, all right, we like this thing, we're gonna go hard in this area, we're gonna like, I don't know, create sludge metal or thrash or whatever it is. Like, yeah, with with that much sonic territory being covered, it gives the bands coming after them a lot to choose from to to develop on. Yeah, and so I guess that's a pretty decent segue to get into, um, you know, the one of the weirder ones that I, I think I've heard, which is Ark by Agoraphobic Nosebleed. I always trip over that fucking word. Um, that one is strange for a lot of reasons, uh, but it is a, a, it is a, a, a point where a band really just picked and chose what they wanted to, to do at that time, uh, and what they wanted to do at that time was vastly different from anything else they've ever done. Um, so were you familiar yeah, with this before? I had listened to it a little bit. Like I, yeah, I got into Agoraphobic Nosebleed. Uh, I guess around the time Agorapocalypse came out again, again with the stupid titles. Um, and that was the album they, before that, I guess had done like essentially gimmick drum machine grindcore. Not gimmicky in the sense of being bad or like uh, just tossed off as a joke, but like you'd have whatever that release was with like a hundred songs on one CD and like songs that are seconds long and then with Agri-Apocalypse is like okay we're gonna write some slightly longer songs more metally sort of riffs um also the first release I believe to have um uh Catherine Katz as a vocalist who I believe was the creative sort of force behind uh uh arc yeah at least I what I heard what I heard was the the plan was for each Agri-Apocalypse Noseweed famously has like like three vocalists and the idea I think was for each of them to have an EP length release where they were the creative direction of it they were dictating the terms of what the music was nothing I think art came out 2016 and nothing they haven't really released anything since I don't think which is there's a lot going on there it's really unfortunate Um, too because I think it's a really neat project uh, and it gave us this album which I think is an extremely strong sludge doom album whatever you want to call it uh, and yeah, Kat was the one behind this, and I, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but like she quit the band 
not too long after this because she said that, I don't know, there were some accusations of misogyny um, from the rest of the band, which, as I said, like, I don't want to accuse anybody of anything. I don't know anybody in that band, obviously, but, like, it doesn't shock me too much if that's true. You know? Like, that just sounds like something that could happen, unfortunately. Yeah, like, it's, it's rare that I'm surprised by any stories like that at this point. Right. It's, it's, it always fucking sucks, obviously, and, um, yeah, a shame, obviously, that, I, like, yeah, there's unlikely to be any further collaboration yeah, with... Yeah, because uh, I think she is an exceptional vocalist. I think that was the thing that I really took away from this album, is that she is just so, so good. And I think it works really well with the with the concept behind the album, because she wrote it as her mother was dying, and this was sort of her way of, like, processing all of the conflicting emotions about that. You know, the, the song Not a Daughter, and then Deathbed is like, you know, the refrain is Forgive Me. I mean, you know, there's just a lot going on there emotionally, and I think that that probably wouldn't have worked as well without as expressive of a vocalist. Um, no, obviously not. Um, like, yeah, I think a, a, a vocal style that, like, whenever I, whenever Cat would guest on a Pig Destroyer song or uh, do it on a Nosebleed song, it's like, oh, this is, yeah, this is doing a lot more for me than the other singers they have who are obviously extremely strong as well for that style um and yeah they, they just matching the heaviness of the themes in the music like i feel like before that agrofort nosebleeds if you're being unkind you could call an edgelord band in terms of uh lyrics especially or like focusing on horrors of everyday life or socio-political themes or whatever but honestly the kind of stuff that doesn't affect you personally in the same way as you know one of your your parents dying and so yeah probably i would imagine going through that kind of experience allows you to access a aspect of emotion that you're not really seeing from a band called agoraphobic nosebleed up to this point yeah i mean as you said they were they were kind of gimmicky um and to come out with something like this with and it is kind of a gimmick in and of itself the idea that they were gonna do um you know a different genre for each vocalist um but it's a gimmick that i think worked in this case uh and i'm really not that upset that they didn't continue because at least they got the one great album out of it um which again that fucking riff on deathbed you know the one i'm talking about halfway through where like it just sounds like the nastiest sabbath riff i've ever heard in my life like i remember uh putting on that song uh when i was getting a tattoo because back when I was first getting tattoos at this tiny little shop in the small town I lived, the uh, everybody was kind of friends with each other. Like, we would just sit around, and sometimes they would bring beer in, and, you know, we'd stay in the shop until 3 in the morning or whatever, so they would hand you the, the cord to put on whatever music you want. I put that on, and they just cranked the speakers so loud that you could hear them out in the street, you know? Um, and so I remember that very vividly. I remember that riff... Um, kind of capturing my attention and kind of overtaking the album unfortunately like the it sucks when you you have something so strong that you kind of forget to listen to the rest of the album um but i guess that happened um 
I guess like you, you hope you would have any kind of strong point on an album that demands your attention that much that you just listen to that over and over again and then you're like oh yeah there's a the whole rest of the album here wait what uh, so. yeah you totally forget I mean and I'm glad that I did this because it gave me it forced me to go back and listen with intention that's kind of a big part of what I've been trying to do just recording this this whole experiment thing that I'm doing is just forcing myself to listen to things with more intention and less just sort of passively putting them on. Um, but before we move on from that, have you ever listened to Salome Kat's uh, other project? Like her, I think it was like her first band to like really oh, record Salome? Salome? Is it Salome or Salome? I forget the exact pronunciation. I don't, I don't know the pronunciation. I, I just I, know that I think they're really good. I, I definitely listened to Terminal, the album they released, uh, the last album that band released, which was, yeah, yeah, very sludgy and sort of doom metal so that I guess foreshadows the path taken on Ark um, I think it was mainly that song Epidemic on that album I liked a lot um, but yeah uh, another extremely strong band that kind of split up like maybe before achieving true greatness but yeah, so well that seems to be the story of Kat's career unfortunately I really hope that she comes back and, and does something else I haven't heard of her doing anything else but you know I'm still going to talk about her because I want more people to listen to her music. Um, but anyway, we can move on to the next thing, which, you know, a band that has definitely not even seemingly considered breaking up given just how much, how much music they've put out over the past, like what, 30 years has, has Converge been together for 30 years? Cause it certainly feels like that. I, I guess it would have been early '90s they started. Um, obviously, lineup changes and stuff since then, but uh, secure or, or a stable lineup, essentially since the album we're about to talk about, which I assume everyone knows what we're here to talk about. Yeah, uh, and and if you mention Converge, you kind of have to talk about Jane Doe. Um, and I've jokingly, I've referred to myself like the way that I look is like the kind of guy who thinks about Converge a lot. Um, you know, I'm we are both, standard. We are, we are both extremely Converge looking motherfuckers. We are. <laughs> as soon as the video popped up for this chat, I was like, ah, shit, we, we are like the same genre of guy, aren't we? <laughs> Pretty uh, much. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, this album kind of blows me away every time I listen to it because like, I don't know about you, but this is credited as being sort of a staple of the metalcore genre. But when I actually listen to it, it doesn't sound like anything else in that genre. Uh, in, unless you can pick up on some nuances of I the album, but like, I don't, I don't hear metal, it. Metalcore, metalcore is essentially a meaningless term at this point. Like people use it to mean vastly different kinds of things, and you're supposed to just guess what type of metalcore they mean by that. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, to be honest, I, I almost feel like it's it kind of doesn't even sound like anything else in Converge's own discography. Like, yeah. um, the stuff before it is maybe a lot more similar to other metalcore bands that are, that had existed at that at that time, and you can trace its influences much more closely. After that, I think they developed the Converge sound, which um, other bands, I guess, have imitated, but um, it's really their own and. Yeah, like pretty much every album since Jane Doe has been very strong, but like, I don't know if anything they release or anyone anyone else can release can really do the same thing as this album did. I don't know if you can ever really channel the the feelings 
that went into this album and maybe that's a good thing because by all the, I mean just by listening to it you can tell this was an incredibly horrible uh, negative kind of vibe to channel throughout an entire album but yeah I mean and it's because you point out that it doesn't sound like anything else they've done because apparently um, Jacob Bannon the vocalist was saying that he had actually planned at least two of these songs to be a part of like a side project of his that was a little more experimental and then he just decided, now nah, we're actually going to do, we're just going to have Converge play this. And one of them was Hell to Pay, uh, and I think the other one was, what was it, Phoenix and Flames might have been? Um, I don't know. Either way, it was like a couple of tracks for the end of the album in Hell to Pay, which is probably my favorite track on, on the album. Um, which almost feels wrong, because it sounds so different from the rest of the album, that it's like, do you even like the album? <laughs> but... Um, hmm. I just appreciate the fact that they got so experimental with it. And there are fucking blast beats on this album. You know, like, yeah. I don't think any other metalcore band is going to be hitting blast beats. Um, but I certainly appreciate I, that they did it. I remember hearing somewhere that um, Ben Collar, Converge Drummer, at this point, I think was literally only 20 years old or something, wasn't amazing at, like, a double bass pedal drumming or maybe only used a single pedal kit or something. So to compensate, decided to do a lot more fills using his hands to make that the interesting part rather than the bass pedal work. And, I mean, I'm, I'm not a drummer at all, so I can't tell you what's going on there technically, but I just know that the drums on the album are incredible. Like, Absolutely. Like this is the, the first album converged did with Ben Collar as drummer and it's amazing to consider like I don't know how much he'd recorded before this but yeah it's I don't even have words yeah yeah I mean I think the instrumentation is really strong um you know Kurt Ballou doing his guitar playing I love listening to his guitar playing because like I don't think that I don't think anybody else plays like him in the genre um, there's almost like a noodley kind of thing going on where he's just doing a whole lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs all the way across. Um, not even at the... doesn't even sound like he's hitting it on the E string half the time, which, you know, a lot of the times that low-end crunch is what you expect from metalcore, especially if you're our age and you grew up in that era where the, like, what, second or third wave of metalcore was really kind of coming up. Um, I do remember, though, um, the first Every Time I Die LP... Uh, last night in town, the uh, guitar player Andy, uh, they said he said they opened for Converge, and he came back uh, stage as Converge was about to come on. He walked up to Kurt and he was like, "Hey, what'd you think? You know, I think it was pretty good, right?" And Kurt was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. The riffs were a lot better when I fucking wrote them, but you know, they were pretty good." Uh, <laughs> and I, mean, I think you, he told you that story. Get, you can get away with saying that when you're Kurt Ballou, because yeah. You, I, I have to imagine a lot of the bands he produces, there's some assistance going on there. Yeah, yeah. I think that they were actually recording an album together when Andy told that story, and, and Kurt was, like, really embarrassed by it. Oh. <laughs> um, but, hey, I mean, it's true. Like, everybody ripped them off, and it, but they couldn't really rip this album off, because how the fuck could you? You got basically black metal vocals and drums, and then everything else is going on. Um, and I think that sort of eclecticism is kind of a key component of what I like, which is why I'm glad that you got into, when you gave me your albums, some of the ones you gave me were uh, really bizarre and really kind of smashing a lot of things together that I find really interesting. Um, and namely, like the first one that you gave me was Between the Buried and Me's Colors. 
um, which I'm so glad that you you put that on there because I haven't listened to this album in years. Um, but it did come out in what 2008, which would have been like the prime time for me to discover this. I think 2007. Um, uh-huh. That's I think that's right. And yeah, yeah, I guess it is kind of an odd choice. Like, uh, allow me to go on an extended tirade about uh, Metal Archives, the uh, 20-year-old uh, site that lists every metal band on earth, but is extremely kind of um, persnickety about what it considers metal, like Between the Buried and Me, not listed on there, Converge, not listed on there. I guess apparently they're metalcore and that's not metal or something, and it's just like... The way the way I always think about this is an experience I had once listening to a Between the Buried and Me album when my dad sort of started knocking on my door, like, uh, banging on his own. What is that goth metal you're listening to? Goth? <laughs> <laughs> I love parents trying to trying to like guess what something is, and they just sort of like pick random words that they think are associated. Parents just don't understand. No, they clearly don't. I, th- I think in the UK, goth. I think in the UK, goth was just the catch-all word for like any of the kids that dressed black or had straightened hair or anything. Oh, that's not um, just a UK but, um, thing. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, but it's like. I think it's just kind of funny how metal always tries to hyper-categorize itself and have as niche a sub-genre as possible when, like, to your parents, it is all the same thing. It is all unbearable. It all sounds the same. So, yeah, why have you got to, like, be so like, ridiculous about what pants you're counting as metal or not? Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, my introduction to this one was uh, my, my very good friend since I was a child, uh, uh, Tom. We both started playing bass guitar around the same time. He took to it way more than I did and is a professional musician now. Uh, But he, around this time, was the guy that introduced me to loads of stuff. And a lot of it was because, you know, we both wanted to listen to bands with sick bassists or, like, that were technically very uh, adept, which is how, like, he introduced me to a lot of jazz. And also, yeah, Between the Buried and Me's album Colours, which I think is where they first... uh, truly became something more than like metal previous albums I guess were metalcore they were on Victory Records which I think is uh, dedicated to that sort of style of metalcore and with this one it becomes I guess you could call it prog I, I it, it seems silly calling any modern band prog but like or progressive but that's basically what Between the Buried and Me yeah. I think that that could apply here uh, yeah I mean it, it Basically, like when I think of prog, I think of like something that just sort of explodes the concept of you know niche genres. Um, you know that's why like I'm totally fine with calling like Mastodon um, a prog band at least basically since like Blood Mountain on because they've kind of just taken your opportunities to to categorize them and and sort of shut the door on it. And I don't think any album that I've heard in a long time does that better than Colors. I mean, certainly in, certainly in terms Still. of the amount of genres it uh, sort of skips through as it goes. So you, you start off uh, with just, you know, p- playing piano and singing, and then it turns into a Muse song, basically. Then uh, I guess the song after that is <laughs> essentially mainly death metal throughout most of it, but you get... It never stops with one thing for more than like a minute, basically, before you'll hop into another genre or just a, even just a time signature change or uh, going from a distorted riff into a clean riff or acoustic or, or anything like that. And I, I think that's a, a strength of the album and also maybe kind of a weakness because um, 
it, it, it's an extremely like restless album like it can't stop and sit in one place for more than one time and really just get comfortable with anything it, it's it almost at times feels like they're racing to show off everything they can do and it is like extremely impressive I remember yeah like the first few times listening to this album as like 17 year old or whatever like just having my mind blown at what they could do and how much space they could cover but I guess there are times at the moment listening back to it I felt a bit like not that it's a gimmick necessarily but just that like I wish they would sort of calm down a bit and just sit and explore a certain mood for a while longer like or certain bits I think I think it's Answer the Sky one of those songs there where they drip into a sort of a cowboy ragtime kind of thing where it's just like okay lads you're you're just like yeah this is just kind of you're trying to be funny and like yeah but like I don't know, because, I mean, I think that I didn't get the same vibe that they couldn't sit still, because, like, this is going to sound really out there, and just follow me here. Like, this album reminds me a whole lot of Red-Headed Stranger by Willie Nelson, um, which is still one of my favorite albums ever. What I'm saying is, uh, they they keep, it's, it's all a variation on a theme that they may change a little bit in the song, they may change some of the instrumentation, they may even shift the melody here and there, but like the, they're playing it all with the same tone in mind. Okay. They're communicating the same thing on every song, and you keep hearing this, these refrains that are calling back to the beginning, when, and they sort of lay the baseline for what this album is right in the first, I don't know, five to eight minutes or so. And once you've heard that, you can follow the rest of the album and understand that there is a through line here. And that's what I felt listening to this. And that's why I'm saying redheaded stranger. Cause it's the same thing where like, once they establish the baseline of what to expect in this album, uh, they'll keep calling back to that very literally by just playing it over and over again yeah. throughout the album. Like it was a chorus, but you know, the same feeling is there. I think in the first episode I talked about, like I love albums that have a consistency of tone and theme um, just as much, if not more so, than a song that has like a sonic consistency. Yeah, yeah, Does that absolutely. Make sense? So there's, yeah, there's not sonic consistency throughout the album in terms of what genre or like tone is being used, but absolutely a consistency in terms of yeah vision or overall direction that the the album is moving in. Like that, that I understand. It, I don't think that's incredibly far out there. Um, I can't confess to be familiar with like Willie Nelson or country music at all, but like. I get your point, certainly. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up, I grew up on a farm in, you know, the southern half of the United States. So, you know, country music was kind of baked into my DNA, yeah. I guess. Um, Undoubtedly. But yeah, and and when I say consistency of tone, I probably should have been more clear. I don't mean consistency of tone in the audio sense, because you know, that that is the exact opposite of what I'm trying to say. By tone, I mean what they're communicating to you. So, like. You know, like you said, a sort of vision, yeah, and, uh, and I think that they had that on this album. One hundred percent. Like whatever I can say about the the genre hopping throughout the album, there was absolutely a very strong concept attached to this album. Like uh, narratives uh, being told through either songs or throughout the whole album. Really, that was clearly very meticulously planned out by the band, and I think it's something that they continue to do to this day. I'm, I'm not sure their albums since have. Uh, been that I've been able to get into them as much. I've kind of 
fallen off with them but like yeah everything they do since then has been done with an extremely clear sense of purpose and of narrative or of concept throughout each album so and this yeah. this was the album where I think where they really uh, uh, stepped up to that kind of level and were like okay we can we can do this instead of just releasing an album of songs we can make this kind of uh, statement to the extent that I think now their most recent album was What Colors 2 like I, have, I haven't even listened to it to be honest with you because I feel like it can only disappoint I, it can only disappoint me I feel like but yeah yeah, I mean that's the unfortunate part of that. It's a very prog. That's a, that a prog rock band thing to do is to like fifteen years after the fact release the sequel to your like most renowned album. Like, like I'm swear I swear Queen Queen's Reich or whoever the fuck did that with Operation Mindcrime or yeah they did boy. they did another band that yeah I don't give a fuck <laughs> about Queen's Reich, I'll be honest <laughs> not for me not not for me at all um, but on the topic of um, you know, sort of concepts and, and consistencies. So I'll admit there were like two of these albums and I would kind of expected this, but there were two albums here that I didn't know at all. Um, and one of them was not going to try to pronounce their name, um, but they're French. So do you know how to pronounce th their um, name? Wait, if you're saying French, is this uh, Alceste? I'll say or I'll cyst. Okay, because like I don't know, it sounds like too close to incest that I don't want it to come out I've, wrong. I've always uh, said it as I'll but, like, but I mean, I've heard people say it's I'll say, but I'm I'm not saying that. I'm sorry. Like, um, no, no, fuck that. <laughs> no, we're we're anglophones over <laughs> that, here. That's we're, right. We're keeping that's it straightforward. Right. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so I'll cyst uh, with the album Echoes de Lune. Uh, I think I might. This might actually be an album I came across, um, like in a physical store. Uh, in my second year of university, I had a year abroad in Japan, uh, as as my degree was Japanese, and so I was in a record store in Tokyo and saw the, I think like, just this really ornate uh, CD art of like, it looked like a like a kid's like uh, fairy tale book illustration or something. I think. That, that's the kind of vibe of Alcest that you could kind of fairly ascribe to them and I don't think that uh, the guy, the main artist Neige behind the band would be particularly offended at that comparison the theme of every Alcest release has been the kind of visions uh, Neige would have as a child of like some sort of uh, world beyond our own of like mystical beings and fairies and shit which sounds like it should be the musically kind of suspect and I I think Alcest has maybe a tenuous thing exactly and yet instead this is the band that essentially invented uh, there's there's no good name for it I guess Black Gaze the, the kind of style performed by Alcest Deaf Heaven uh, others like I, I don't really care about others the, the more sort of derivative bands in that style but the ones blending black metal and shoegaze and post-rock influences uh which i think alcest were among the first to do certainly if not the first yeah i think that i think that they were pretty much the beginning of it because let's see yeah i mean that sounds about right because that was the mid-2000s before um pretty much anything else 
sounded like that, or 2005 uh, was when they put first put out the EP that sounded like that. And you're right, there's a lot of derivative bands that, you know, there's basically two bands in the genre, and then there are a bunch of bands trying to sound like that in the genre. Um, and, the, and the gulf between is, like, uh, I mean, there, there are, like, decent bands doing that sort of style, but I think it's very telling that the band's most famous for that style, Death Heaven, have... Con- constantly evolved on each album to the point where like their last album not really metal at all and um i wasn't as into it as their previous work but i'm still like like good good for you you're, you're actually evolving doing something different and alcest honestly maybe have only just kept trying to tinker with and perfect their style on each al- album they haven't changed a lot except when they tried to just do a straightforward shoegaze album and it wasn't as good so they stopped doing that uh, and Ekaz de Lune, I think, is probably the most refined example of, or, the, or at least the first example of when they did a Black Gaze album that like crystallised that genre, essentially created it and was like, okay, this is what it is. This is among the highest expressions of it. Um, you got some elements of black metal there in the in the drums and the some of the vocals, but even most of the vocals I think are sung rather than screeched. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that there's, always... there's a softness to it, you know, and, and I guess that's really the difference between like black gaze and regular black metal is that like, this is really, ev- I mean, black metal is supposed to be really evocative. And I think that it generally is like, I, I think it's good black metal if it takes you to a place that pretty much every black metal band wants to take you to. Um, there's a pretty consistent vision behind the entire genre. Um, and I think that's what I got from this is that like the real difference was just like the vision like they, they, they're still trying to take you somewhere fantastical um, and, and sort of beyond otherworldly in a sense like more spiritual um, it's just a different kind of spirituality and a different kind yeah, of fantasy absolutely like if, if previous black metal bands to this were trying to create a, a dark or evil uh, kind of fantasy place to take you or, or just to uh, evoke physical landscapes of, I guess, like Northern Europe, that kind of forested or mountainous terrain. This is trying to essentially transport you away to that uh, fairy kingdom that Neige, I guess, would imagine as a child. Or in this case, this album, I think, is has a lot of like aquatic or like ocean-based imagery, uh, and you can really sort of feel like maybe you're on a boat under the moonlight, sort of sailing away to a distant shore that you can't see, but. You know, whatever's on the other side of that sure is not the same as the place you came from. It, it, yeah, like, as you say, it's very evocative of both a journey and a destination that are, trans—I guess, transformative and just also just different to where you've been before. Yeah, yeah. So, if you don't mind my asking, like, why did you put this on here? Because, like, you're not a Black Gaze fan generally. It sounds like you like them and and Death Heaven, but why this one? The depth of my love for those two bands is so all-consuming that even though I don't have much time for the rest of the genre, like this album and and The Sound It Creates and and Death Heaven as well evoke in me feelings that no other metal band really ever does or not many bands in general do. And I I think also you, you mentioned the word softness in connection with metal which i don't think really any other metal bands are consciously trying to do because the ego of the genre almost is so swept up in terms of being hard and um 
well, basically being masculine is is a genre that is very swept up with projecting power or projecting strength or whatever. And this album and this band are very much not, uh, which I think makes them kind of unique. And yeah, again, I, you can quibble whether it's even metal if those are its aesthetic and artistic goals. If if you're the kind of person that thinks metal is about projecting power if, as an essential thing, then maybe this isn't metal. Like, yeah, I'm not even sure if it is myself, but like, I don't know, something something about it. Like, uh, yeah, it's it's not something I find, I find easy to express in words, but there's enough there that I'm like, and it's also maybe just an album I find easy to recommend to people who aren't already interested in metal. Like, it has some connection to it, but is inviting enough. Perhaps it's not it's not trying to put yeah. anyone off. I don't think. I don't know. I don't have a, I don't well, have a I clear answer. No, I think that you got... I think that was a pretty good uh, summation of it, honestly. Um, I appreciate that. Um, so another album... Let's keep with stuff that I don't know uh, anything about or didn't know anything about, which is Gin uh, by Cobalt. Um, so, like, I made sure to note when I listened to this that this was, like, perfectly in a blind spot for me because uh, this came out about the time where I wasn't really listening to any metal because frankly, I think that it got really stale around this time. Like this was like what 2014, I think. Um, uh, no, this is long before. Like, uh, so this album came out in 2009, and I uh, this was uh, again also the time when I was in Japan and at first started probably looking at like uh, end of year review lists, uh, music blogs, and stuff, and it came up in there a lot. Uh, very well received at that time, um, but. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know if 2009, like the end of that decade, was a fertile time. Maybe for some genres, but not so much others. Yeah, um, that I makes think... sense. That makes sense. Because like 2009 to like 2015, roughly, I really wasn't listening to like anything new because I just kind of felt like it was getting derivative. Uh, I had a couple of bands that I liked that I kept up with, and that was about it. And right. also, I didn't really listen to black metal at all until I was like... I don't know, 25 probably. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was, I guess, late on black metal as well. So I would have been around 2021 20, when I first listened to this album when it came out and had not had much history with any black metal at all. And so I thought it was interesting to consider when people's entryway into a genre is not through what are considered the canonical like standards of that genre. Like, I think US black metal, or certainly bands, US black metal bands, are there are well-regarded ones and ones who are considered canonical in some way but i think if you were being given the the keys to the kingdom of black metal or whatever you're going to get recommended you know norwegian bands mostly or, or at least nordic bands that's considered the birthplace of the or the crystallization of the genre there whereas with um, cobalt and then i think uh actually from from my area i think within probably like half an hour 40 minute drive from me you you could get to uh the guy behind panopticon um you know like, like you go around town like people who have lived in my city for a little while and they they like know the guy uh behind panopticon yeah um which is another, another... US band that sort of elevated the sound i think because that's what i heard on gin was like you know you're respecting the genre but you you just kicked it up to another level with something new uh, instead of being derivative, which maybe that's not true cult, but that's kind of the point, is that cult gets boring. 
I mean, I, I don't have time for any uh, of the cult posturing or anything or any of the sort of dress-up stuff. Um, and, and Panopticon is another band I respect immensely and um, were, were instrumental in getting me into any black metal at all. So, so weirdly, I... I yeah, I got into American black metal bands first and then gradually started listening to the classics, some of which I loved a lot and some of which I uh, can take it or leave it. Um, yeah, certainly in the context of Cobalt's discography, their previous releases had been, yeah, their own thing. And you could hear this, some of the stuff that's on June in them, but they were also much more uh, adhering to the black metal templates of uh, blast beats and faster tempos. Whereas Jin. It's kind of a lot... I think tempo-wise, it's a lot slower than a lot of black metal. And I've always found it interesting. It feels like much more drum-based music to me than a lot of black metal, which tends to be focused just on guitars as the the main thing. Like, whenever Cobalt play live, uh, Eric Wonder, who does all the instrumentation when they play in the studio, he will play drums live. Whereas I think most one-man black metal bands, when they play live, they take over guitar because it's what they see as the, the main instrument behind their compositions yeah I and so I, I get the but I get the impression listening to Jin especially like um, the, the drumming on it feels so much more organic to me than most other uh, most metal bands in general not just black metal they'll be very sort of rigid and robotic and they're playing like I don't know if it's because they're playing to a click or I, I don't know anything about drums for someone who listens to them this much but like yeah, something about it just feels a lot more loose and uh, as if it's just willing to let the drumming sort of take the song where it's going. And it's not that there's not riffs on the song as well, because there's a ton of those. Like, I've listened to this album so many times, and I was listening to it earlier again today, and the sort of the first minute or so of Arsenery's the third song on the album still made my like hairs on my arm stand up, essentially. Yeah, it's it's, it was, got, it's it was, got the riffs, it, and and I noticed too because I was listening to this while I was doing some other stuff because I was just really busy these past couple of weeks. That's why I took some time off work. Thank God. Um, but I was listening to this, and it it did jerk me out of whatever I was doing multiple times, um, and that's always kind of a good sign. Um, but yeah, mm. no, this this album really was special, and and I think that it kept uh, some of the other stuff about black metal that maybe a piece of me can relate to but doesn't really want to i guess um because you know that what is the vocalist on this album was he the one that ended up getting booted from the band for being kind of a shithead? yes uh so phil mcsorley who sung on this and cobalt's previous records at that time i think a staff sergeant in the u.s military which uh which was i think used as a kind of distinctive thing about the band that oh this they've got a military member as a bandmate but also goes a lot of the way to explaining what that kind of mentality leads to I guess yeah fired for some sort of homophobic tirade on Facebook of all places that's uh, the place for it really yeah definitely, <laughs> definitely. and I, I remember as well reading some of the interviews he gave with some other like raw black metal side project he had where it just seems to just be a genuinely unpleasant person in terms of it seemed to go beyond the sort of black metal posturing of being true cult or whatever and into just being the, the mindset of a lot of uh, service members in the American military or police of essentially seeing yourself as a superior being to anyone who's not in your core or your force or whatever 
Not not to single out America because that's soldiers and no, that's fine. Everywhere. You can, as an American, I'm giving you position <laughs> or permission to do that. As, as, as a as a Brit, I don't really have much room to criticize. <laughs> is the thing. Um, but yeah, so shortly after that, to to his credit, Eric Wonder, the other member of the band, uh, fired him, replaced him with another guy. Uh, yeah, so it's it's like as you what you were saying, like jettisoning certain aspects of black metal that we don't need. Other, uh, yeah, it's like some of that stuff was what they were trying to move beyond, and other stuff clearly not, at least for certain members of the band. But here we are. Yeah, and and I think that what's fun is that you know now that we're really getting into this, I'm noticing the pattern in your selections because that's what I, I always try to look for whenever people give me their their selections. I look for what what's consistent, and that gives me sort of a a keyhole view into your taste uh, and what you look for in music, um, which probably says something about you as a person, I guess, um, which is that your choices are all escalations, really. Um, it's taking something that already mm-hmm. existed and bringing it up to another level or bringing it up to uh, something more challenging than the bass. You know, so like Cobalt, I'll say like, taking black metal and then moving it to something new. It's a progression of uh, the genre. It's an escalation of the genre. And then looking at uh, Between the Buried and Me, of course, like taking, I guess, like this sort of modern, like 2007 core music and escalating it to something uh, higher, something better, something different. Um, And then the next one that I wanted to talk about was uh, an album that I actually know, uh, necrophagist uh, epitaph, which I'm again. I'm glad you put it on there so that I, I had an excuse to go back to it. But tell me about your history with this album and, and why you uh, wanted it on so, there. I mean, what, that that thread you sort of pulled out from my choices is interesting because I hadn't thought of it in that way. I was just thinking of uh, albums that I thought of as being either canonical or kind of sideways or weird introductions to a genre, like with. Uh, Al's, that Alsis album, like that's yeah, like a pretty standard pick if you were looking for a Black Gaze album to introduce someone to. Gin uh, probably not so much with Black Metal. It's not, even though it's a well-regarded Black Metal album, it's not like a canonical one of like a foundation of the genre. It's a development of it. Um, with Epitaph by Necrophages, that's very much yeah, just a, a stepping stone or an, an escalation rather than like a foundational pillar. And yeah, th- this is another one. Like with colors was introduced to me by my my same friends. I think a lot of people who aren't already super into death metal or other forms of extreme metal, they'll find an aspect of it or an example of it that's like so ridiculously extreme that they're like essentially showing it to each other as a joke. Like, look how like crazy this shit is. Uh, which was, I think, basically our reaction to Epitaph when we were first listening to it uh, would have been around the same time as we we got into colors because. Yeah, in terms of technicality and just um, uh, just playing like five million notes a second, this is one of those death metal albums, the the kind where they're really keen to show like what bits of classical music they know. Um, I think is it only Ash remains. The end of that song is um, I, I can't remember which piece of classical music it is, but it's something. And it, yeah, it's that kind of thing, like the the, the shredding stuff, which. Like these days, I'm not super into like I like I like a lot of extremely technical and hyper competent 
stuff in metal, but preferably the people who can sort of weave it into the context of a song, which, uh, although there are like incredibly sick riffs and solos all over this album, like they are kind of all kind of slapped together. And I don't know if any of the songs themselves stand out as songs rather than collections of riffs, but the, the riffs themselves and the amount of technicality on display is like that staggering that you almost, it doesn't matter almost. Yeah. I, I actually felt, I actually felt like the, the technicality itself, I didn't really feel like it did overtake the rest of the, the album. You know, I, I felt like the, the way to do that is to sort of season it, right? Like, Mm. I don't want the main course itself to just be you noodling all around on a guitar because then Steve Vai would be like the most interesting guitar player in the world and or Joe Satriani or whoever the fuck. Um, but <laughs> that, that was also guys we were getting into around that time. Like, because I, I guess especially for my, my friend who became a much better musician than me, it was just like, who are the most technical guys? Like, what can you learn from their playing? Which obviously I think is important as a musician to do, but... Um, it's not always the stuff you're going to come back to after however many years. But but weirdly with this one, I have. I guess I just have a lot of good memories associated with it. Yeah, and I think it's one that I'm going to come back to because I think I think maybe just the songwriting itself did resonate with me more than it did with you then. Um, because when I was listening to this, I was really interested in, in each individual song uh, and not just you know what they were doing. It felt like everything was there to supplement the song itself or supplement like their vision. Um, rather than just aimlessly noodling. I don't know. That's the vibe I got mm. from it. But uh, Yeah, I think I may be being a little bit harsh on this and maybe on Colors as well, to be honest. Because, like, yeah, there's definitely a reason I think this was the Shred album we sort of became attached to rather than however many other things are out there. There, there, there is something going on there that keeps you coming back. And like maybe, maybe it was that there was a, a dedication to just taking a lot of time to create something that was... Uh, doing more than just shredding because I think this was they only released two albums and they like tried to write a follow up to this album for like six years or something and then the band split up and I guess it was just because they couldn't write something that was to their standards of what they wanted to achieve but I have no idea um, yeah and you know whenever I was taking some notes on, on the Alcest album I think one of the notes yeah the, one of the notes that I wrote down was art school kids heard this and got really terrible ideas uh, and I think that mm. remains true with with Necrophagus because, you know, I go through and you'll just find like random death metal bands on Spotify lists or whatever. And there are so many bands out there that really, really want to write this album that are just utterly forgettable. And I think that is a testament to this one because it's not if this wasn't the first tech death album. There had been tech death albums before this. Mm. I mean, shit. The- I, when I when I. When I listened to it again, like for this, I, I found myself hearing a lot more death in it than I did before. Like, especially like you know, Sound of Perseverance era death when they were really pushing the technicality. Like, I, I started to hear the the through line from that era into this era of, of shredding. And yeah, to be fair to Necrophages, they also picked up on the songwriting uh, present in death, not, and not just the technicality. Yeah, yeah, and. and- like I said, there are a lot of bands that listen to this and bring it back around to the first, one of the first things we said on this episode is that they decided to pick what's the most important thing of this. Like, what do we actually care about when you're getting this, this just slab of music in front of you? Like you pick out the important bits. And I think a lot of bands just picked out the, we play guitar real good bits. 
mm-hmm. and that's not very interesting. <laughs> Whereas I think this album is actually pretty interesting. It's 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 only interesting if you've got someone else backing it up. Like like you can't you can't eat a plate of just noodles, as you said. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and look at the last one uh, that you picked, which is uh, "Scum" by Napalm Death, which. I think it's really fun that you picked this one because a lot of the stuff that I'm picking for my choices on the solo episodes uh, are kind of basic. Like I'm talking about like Rain and Blood, like I'm talking about Black Sabbath. I'm talking about the first Slipknot album, um, which is actually good. Okay, <laughs> just gonna say it. It's good. But anyway, as a confirmed as a confirmed new metal hater, I got a lot of time for the first Slipknot album. They got bangers on there. Thank you, like, thank you. Fuck, that's like the best <laughs> thing that you've said in this episode. <laughs> I'm gonna clip that. All the rest of this shit is garbage. This man's talking absolute nonsense until he's like, "Yeah, Slipknot, they're okay." <laughs> exactly. No. Uh, so my notes for Napalm Death, Scum, an album I've listened to plenty of times. I didn't even I didn't need to take notes on it, but uh, hell yes, this is still great. This is still energetic, and this is still kind of funny. Uh, and <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely true with this. Yeah, I mean, so, so like I I always think in my head as I'm listening to this, like everyone in the band when they were making this was like I don't know, like 18 years old. And I think they were younger very than much that. like may, yeah, some of them maybe even younger. And it's like, yeah, this is what you do with your mates when you're like not amazing musicians. You you like a lot of good music and you're energized by it and you're like, how do we push this forward? How do we like kick it up a notch? And the answer is you, you invent grindcore. Um As one does. A, an interesting thing uh, yeah, if, as you do when your name is Mick Harris and you're uh I think I learned on the Wikipedia page I don't know if it's true apparently the second half of this album which uh, famously the first half was a completely different band lineup they were recording like an EP then they kind of didn't know what to do with it and then the band essentially became a different band and they were like yeah let's just record some other stuff and Earache Records just decides to have it as a one album but like the second half apparently a lot of the songs were written by Mick Harris the band's drummer who did not play guitar taking all the strings off the guitar except the bottom two and just like coming up with riffs that someone who doesn't play guitar would write and then that's just the album like you give that to uh, I think it was Bill Steer playing for guitar for the band at the time who went on to become an insanely amazing guitarist but at this point yeah I'll just play these uh, like two string riffs that I drummer wrote sure yeah no Um, it's absolutely true Um, fast fast as possible and like uh, the the thing I was just thinking listening to it was that this like there are lyrics to all these songs and like they're they're like sociopolitically themed this has always been a band that's been very uh, like astute politically and has a a good way of conveying political themes in their songs without being like overbearing even though it's clearly their main focus but it's it's almost like the lyrics don't matter because it is beyond language almost it's beyond music almost yeah like yeah and and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't matter so much what the lyrics are because it's just the mood it conveys is just like the the state of the world has reduced you to such a state and made your emotional state such that all you can do in response is just howl and thrash away at the world and it doesn't even matter what you're saying it's it's just the emotion behind it is something that can't be conveyed 
in any other form except grindcore, essentially. Yeah, and I think that's why I was always attracted to grindcore because I I can relate to that that feeling of just like some sometimes language just doesn't really cover it. You know that sometimes you just need to like take something visceral or, or like sonically grab somebody by the ears and just kind of shake them a little bit, um, mm. which is really what grindcore is. Um, yeah, I, I I used to think I was drawn to it because of it being a uh, more of a derivation of punk, which was what I was into as a snobby teenager until I learned to enjoy metal, enjoy other genres. Um, but I think honestly, thinking about it, it was probably more just that it was conveying an emotion I had no idea how to express inside me. And it's not that grindcore bands had any idea how to express it through words or vocals or anything. It was just through the format of noise, and that's I guess what I responded to. And like since then, grindcore bands, including Napalm Death themselves, have become a lot more adept at, uh, I guess, writing songs and conveying those feelings in actual lyrics or like actual recognizable riffs. Um, and the, uh, the yeah, the best examples of grindcore as a genre have refined themselves into musicians who still carry that same feeling uh, of pushing past the boundaries, but still having something that's a bit more less of a primordial chaos than this album but sometimes you you do just want to go back to the source of primordial chaos and see where it all began um and it still holds up i think i mean it this is not an album where like people just totally blew it away later uh i think it's still just as good um i i yeah i think i think napalm death i'm one of the people that thinks napalm death are better now than they've ever been like that it's it's insane that this band is still around and is still making music and hasn't really ever split up or anything. And it's it's very odd that like I think a lot about how like when this album first came out, they got a lot of attention in like the British music press. Like like even mainstream stuff like John Peel, the radio DJ, would constantly have them playing sets on his show. There would be like T V doc mini documentaries filmed about Napalm Death. Like uh they they got a lot of like mainstream attention. And I think maybe that's partly because it was seen as a gimmick, like no one's ever played this fast or this hard before. And that made, that attention eventually withered away as they moved on to the next thing. But somehow this band that everyone, I guess, assumed was just a gimmick thing stayed and has stayed on to this day, which is improbable, I think. To put it lightly... Um... Yeah. yeah, I, I, you know, I mentioned it a couple times now on the on the show, but uh, I read uh, Choosing Death, which is a great book. I don't know if you've ever read it, but I highly recommend you. I, do. Keep, I keep meaning, I keep meaning to read it. Yeah, yeah, it it has a pretty exhaustive uh, timeline of Napalm Death and how it really was like when they started out. It really was just like a bunch of fourteen year olds, uh, literally like fourteen year olds playing in the back of a, a shitty broken down pub. Uh, and they ended up coming up with this album um, by, and mainly the drummer that was kind of an asshole, as you said, and kind of wrote the whole thing. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think that pretty well covers it. I mean, it, you know, if there's anything that you wanted to add, uh, feel free, just throw it in there. If there's any through lines that you picked up through this or anything that I picked up in this, you know, before we start wrapping up. Because like I said, I feel like the theme that you had here was a sense of escalation uh, a sense of like taking something that already existed and then pushing it up, pushing it up to to another level or to a different form of expression. Uh, so I'm um, glad you did that because that's an interesting theme to me. Yeah, I, honestly, man, I'm I'm glad you picked up on that 
it thread in what I was talking about because I hadn't noticed it myself until you said it. Um, I guess I sometimes end up finding myself feeling like it can be difficult to imagine where else mu- uh, metal or just heavy music in general can go from here. It can be easy to feel like all the boundaries have been pushed through and there's no more new terrain left to cover, no new way to escalate. But I'm sure people felt that way uh, in 1987 when Napalm Death released Scum, for example, or whenever any of the albums I talked about came out and made a escalation. It's like there's... I, I, it's maybe difficult for me to imagine just as a listener, but I'm sure the next escalation is out there somewhere. Yeah. Waiting to happen, and, and I can't wait to hear whatever it is. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I agree. Um, so, anyway, uh, we're coming to the point now where you got to give me some homework or something. You got to tell me what do I need to talk about? What is something that you would love to hear more about or you would want to subject me to at least? Because you said you wanted to make me listen to shitty albums, so. That's the kind of thing that, <laughs> that you is make something like. That is the kind of stuff I've subjected myself to and live tweeted about more than once. Um, I once listened to every Cryptopsy album uh, in a single day and was nearly delirious by the time I got to the end. That, that, that's far too much tech death for anyone in one day. Uh, but I'm sure there's less punishing things that you can do for the show that would still produce interesting conversations. Like, I've always. As somebody who like watches a lot of bad movies, I'm always like, you can learn sometimes more from watching or listening to something shitty and picking apart why it sucks, like than than in explaining why something's so great. Um, but like, there's there's tons of examples to think of, and I'll have a think about it. Okay, so I guess yeah. that's what's going to have to happen to me for the next show is you're going to have to give me some shitty albums, and I'm going to have to listen. The to people you. demand it. Okay. The people demand it. All right. Well, I. I I am here to do nothing but please the people, um, all like four people who are probably going to listen to me talk. Um, I will make sure that I please them by going through the masochistic endeavor that you're going to put me through. Um, so yeah, That's it, right. I guess uh, you can shoot me the albums and I'll kind of release them as I can over the Twitter account uh, so people can follow along if they want to do that to themselves. Um, and I'm frankly kind of looking forward to it. But, uh, John, thanks for coming on, man. Um, you know, you're welcome on whenever. You've definitely listened to, to more than I have, I would say. Uh, so anytime you get something interesting or anytime you want to shoot out a topic, let me know. Um, we'll definitely make that happen. Thanks so much, man. This is, like, somehow the first podcasting experience I've ever had in uh, my 32 years on the planet, and it's been, like, a delight, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for... Land me on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a great time. Is there anything you want to plug, anything you're doing, or your Twitter handle, or anything that you want to throw out there for people? Um, I mean, I guess you can follow me on Twitter, at analgender, a hideously stupid title I picked nine years ago and have doggedly stuck with, and if I changed it now, it would just be... Yeah, why would you change it after nine years? No, it would feel um, wrong. I don't really have anything of my own to plug, but like... Uh, my my friend who I mentioned who introduced me to all these albums, Tom, he's in a band called uh, Yakul, like like Yakult without the T on the end. Uh, they're more like neo-soul, like jazzy kind of stuff, but um, they're extremely good. They're on Spotify. If anyone wants to listen to them, go check them out. Um, other than that, no, nah, um, it's all good. Great. All right. Well, thanks again for being on here, man. Um, it's been a great time. And I guess next week, uh, folks will be able to listen to me 
he listened to some great albums, listened to some shitty albums. Hopefully they'll be able to, to tag along uh, and we'll keep the conversation rolling.